0: Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing laws, regulations, corporate policies, and more. You can visit animalwellnessaction.org to learn all about our organization, to take part in our legislative activities, and of course, donate. Yes, Animal Wellness Action is a nonprofit. We rely on your donations to do all the good work we do. So I would be remiss. And probably written up and sent to HR if I didn't at least uh, note that by golly, we do depend on your contributions to make this good work happen. So uh, we have a really interesting show today. I've been looking forward to it. um, So so thanks for joining us on it. I think you'll find it very interesting. Our guests are here today to talk about a new film, Wild Beauty, Mustang Spirit of the West. It's now available for pre-order on Apple TV and iTunes ahead of its release date of May 12th. In the show notes, I'll have a link where you can go to uh, iTunes and, and get that movie, download it, and be ready to watch it come May 12th. The Winterstone Picture Production has been called a sweeping, immersive journey into the world of wild horses that illuminates both the profound beauty and desperate plight they currently faced in the Western United States. It won Best Documentary at the 22, 2022 Boston Film Festival, Best Documentary at the St. Louis International Film Festival, best director uh, so is awarded our guest at the 2022 documentary film festival in los angeles um, and um, uh, also best cinematography at uh, a los angeles film festival Ashley, you can correct me i'm not sure i said all of those right but the bottom line is it's really gotten a lot of terrific press you the film the cinematography all uh, being recognized for excellence. It also features two great friends of animal wellness action. Scott Beckstead, our director of campaigns is in it as um, is Marty Irby. Scott's probably the best, uh, the most highly regarded expert on wild horses right now in the United States. Marty Irby, our former executive director, also a very passionate horse guy who was awarded by Queen Elizabeth uh, a couple of years ago for all of his good work for horses. Scott, did Marty ever tell you that he was recognized by the queen? That's that's his best kept secret, right? No, I know, you me? know,
1: it, it's something he doesn't really like to talk about. And um, you, you know, it's just, you have to sort of really tease it out of him. Uh, he's, you know, he's pretty modest about it. So
0: he's a very modest guy. Uh, b- but I'm but I'm even more excited to have with us the director of the film, Ashley Avis. She is an American filmmaker and screenwriter who founded Alchemy Pictures in 2010, which would eventually become Winterstone. She recently wrote, directed, and edited 2020's Black Beauty for Disney+, Plus, which starred Oscar winner Kate Winslet, Mackenzie Foy, and Lane Glenn. In addition to groundbreaking Her work has been called timelessly romantic and elegantly sensual. By the way, that's how Scott describes himself on his LinkedIn profile. Just so you know. Just so you know. It's true.
1: Hey, that's that's truth in advertising. That's that's what I strive for.
0: That's right. That's right. No one connects with him, but that's how he describes himself. (laughs) So, Ashley, super glad you're here. Before we get into the meat of the show, who was the bigger prima donna on set? scott or marty who had to have their own trailer their own special avian water bottles or evian i can't even i don't even know what they drink who was the bigger bigger fuss
2: oh goodness you know i love both of these guys i could never say i could never reveal those details but it uh, definitely <laughs> it
1: was definitely marty it was definitely marty because he i mean you know look at that fancy uh, shirt he's wearing in the movie i mean
2: he you had know, a pretty fancy he, shirt scott that-
1: no, that blue shirt is all about you. Whenever I see my blue shirt hanging in my closet, I call it the Ashley shirt because it seems like every time we, we were going to film something or, or get together for some sort of event, it was always back to the blue shirt. So, yeah.
0: That is my biggest fear is wearing the same shirt in front of a different person or a, the same person at a different time. I almost get to the point where I write down what shirt I wore when I meet people. So I don't image like I only have one shirt. So,
1: Scott, I feel no, your I, pain. I'm I'm bringing the blue I'm bringing the blue Ashley shirt to every single uh, showing of this movie just because I would feel it would just feel wrong otherwise you know.
2: Oh, good. All start. Right. It's a
0: good shirt. Good color on you. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of my fall to roll. Let's get right in, in, into the meat of it. Ashley, you you did Deserted in 2016 about a 24 year old uh, released from prison adolescence. Another movie uh, you did uh, in 2018 about a young teenager. Uh, in an abusive household you have movies coming up called the lamb the summer of impossible and i think i'm going to say it right troncus correct me uh, about overcoming many obstacles uh, is the translation of that word is, is it fair to say that fragility under fire is a theme of your cinematic work
2: that's really beautifully put and i really appreciate you using something so poetic and so powerful i suppose i've never thought about it that way but now i that's a beautiful way to to discuss the different we I, I work in so many different genres and I'm so I'm very drawn often to what I call swan stories often the main character is has a lot of merit but they're beautiful and broken at the same time and they undergo some kind of transformation so that is definitely a consistent theme in my work but fragility under fire I like that a lot that definitely um I think that definitely is is a good way in some ways to describe the documentary because it really, Wild Beauty really started in, we began that film thinking that we were gonna create an indie planet Earth. We thought that it would be this beautiful cinematic look at wild horses and have a celebrity narrator. We never thought that it would become as personal as it did. And I think that that's where perhaps the word fragility is really appropriate because at the the very beginning of the process, like a lot of people that get to know the wild horses, it you, you go down this rabbit hole and kind of this spiral into realizing, oh, this is not good. This is bad. This is really, really bad. And I feel like that the the quest to try to help and understand and correct this evolves into a certain amount of strength and that, and that fire that you're talking about. It's a very interesting use of words. I like them. Yeah.
0: Well, well, thank you. I, I've not been able to see the film uh, yet, and certainly I will when it's available on May twelfth. I can't can't wait to do it. I envy those of our team who've been able to join you with these screenings, but but the imagery from the trailer even provides such a dramatic contrast between these these majestic sweeping. I don't have the words to describe just some of the emotions those horses evoke through through your lens, but also it contrasts with this. Orwellian dystopian imagery of, of literally black helicopters, of this this maniacal chasing of foals, uh government officers strapped to the nines and leather holsters with guns. Um, just talk about your your reaction personally as you went through the production of all this. It's dramatic.
2: It was certainly a almost like it felt like living in a movie throughout the entire process of putting together a documentary because it was it and i tried to elicit this the best that i could in the film for people that don't know what's going on with wild horses they don't know the issue and it and it was that that spiral into my goodness we have all of this astounding beauty on our public lands people can go out and see wild horses you can actually go out and stand near wild horses at horses and watch their interactions and their families and that being so profoundly beautiful and something we have to protect. And then into realizing there's corruption involved. Why are wild horses getting rounded up? How are we using, I love the use of the word Orwellian. I mean, and it begs the question I ask all the time, how in the world are we using helicopters to round up a flight animal in 2023? And for the Bureau of Land Management to call that humane when you watch our documentary and we're very careful about how much of the cruelty we wanted to show as pertain to the injuries. I mean, it's so hard for anyone to see a horse with a broken leg or a broken neck. I think that it teetered into a kind of a bucket of, that's a film that some people are not going to be able to watch and they're going to turn it off if they see that kind of a thing. So it was, and and while the documentary is not made for children, we also didn't, we didn't want to alienate the 12 or 14 year old young person that might really grab onto this issue and want to make a difference. And so it was a very interesting balance, but emotionally going through the process over the years and getting bolder, we certainly got bolder along the way. And like I said, when we thought we were making an indie planet earth, that changed when we went to more roundups and we we started getting bolder in questioning the Bureau of Land Management. And there was really a tipping point at the roundup of Avonaki in 2021, where it was, the, they were so brazen in keeping us away from that trap site and we, this is, had been happening over and over again. And and that was personal because those horses were the first horses we filmed in the wild. And those horses are in Black Beauty. And Black Beauty has been seen by tens of millions of accounts, not just people, accounts. So how many people has Black Beauty affected and, and started educating people about wild horses? Because obviously in our Disney Black Beauty, she's a she's a wild horse rounded up and taken away from her family. But... The Anarchy horses were featured in that film, so, and we had gotten to know them over the years. So that roundup, it, it really was the tipping point. There was a there was a moment on the second day of the roundup where I asked anyone with a camera to turn it around and to, to march up the hill with me and to question uh, Gus Warren, Lisa Reed about why we couldn't see the trap site. And it was a, it was an over hour it was over an hour long conversation as we fought to try to get the right to view the trap site. And so um, it's just been a really interesting process into the lack of oversight I feel the agency has and is able to get away with. I mean, I, in in my opinion, in some cases, it's it seems like they're getting away with not perhaps murder, but these horses are dying under their watch. And how are we calling that humane? How is the agency calling that humane?
0: Excellent, Scott. I'm going to turn it to you. Thank you, Ashley. That's 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 very very vividly and well said, Scott. You I know are an expert on the relationship between the Bureau of Land Management, the people who want to use the land occupied by wild horses. What is going on? Why in the world are we doing this to these animals?
1: Well, I think um, Ashley has really framed it perfectly, um, and uh, you know. What I have come to believe, and what I make sure that I try to convey to people, is that the federal government's most potent weapon against our wild horses and burros on public lands is not the helicopter, it is disinformation. And, um, you know, the, the acting at the behest of industry, especially the livestock industry this agency has embarked on a campaign, not just to depopulate our public lands from these animals that we all uh, love and cherish and care about, uh, but also to mislead the American people as to why it's happening. Uh, And so the agency has constructed this false narrative, which it continues to, uh, to put out to the American people. In a very disciplined way. They use the same words over and over and over and their objective of course is to say this false information so many times that people just start to actually believe it. But the narrative is about uh, overpopulated wild horses and burrows uh, that are uh, doing damage to our public range lands, wildlife, Um, And, you know, basically that they're bad for the natural environment out here in the American West. Uh, And in none of those public communications will you hear the Bureau of Land Management mention the word livestock. Um, and, And so they will paint a picture of horses that are starving to death, you know, out on arid lands where there is no forage. And so they have to use these helicopters to round the animals up. Uh, because it's it's the right thing to do for the horses, and it's the right thing to do for the rangelands. That is what the BLM is out there saying. But what you find is that that is actually a pretext, that the horses are uh, are in a very good condition, that they are thriving on public lands. This is something that, that uh, Ashley's movie really does, is it points out that the Bureau of Land Management you know, uh, tries to justify these roundups by saying that the horses are in terrible conditions and starving to death. And then when people can see with their own eyes that the horses are actually in very good condition, then we see the agency change the narrative and, you know, use other pretexts to to conduct the roundups. But it's all a disinformation campaign. And the, you know, the um, the discouraging thing is that the American media just takes these public pronouncements from the Bureau of Land Management and regurgitates them like they're actual news. They do nothing, you know, too many reporters don't ask the question, okay, you're saying that there are, you know, that, that 500 horses is too many for this particular area. How many cattle and sheep? And it's very revealing that after these roundups, you know, that uh, where they say that, you know, the rangeland can't support a few hundred wild horses, after the roundup just you know within weeks or a couple months thousands and thousands of beef cattle and sheep are turned out onto that same area that uh you know supposedly couldn't support a few hundred wild horses so Um, so let me
0: let me let me break it down there because i want to make sure that that i'm tracking with the narrative so there's this this public land the public owns it federal government and right now residing on it are herds of wild horses however Cattle ranchers and maybe ranchers of other species want that land at a discounted rate, if I'm recalling the facts correctly, right? So they pressure the BLM or the government, whoever's pulling the strings for the BLM, to move the horses out by whatever means necessary. So then that the cattle ranchers can make more profit from the beef they're raising. Is that the overarching Machiavellian narrative here?
1: Yes. Okay. Yes, that's that's basically it, Joseph, that, that um, you, you have, uh, this is a, a perfect illustration of regulatory capture, where you have an agency that is supposed to be regulating an industry, instead doing that industry's bidding. Um, the BLM hues very closely to the wishes of the livestock industry, and the livestock industry resents wild horses because they are consuming forage. Uh, that they want for their cattle and sheep, and yet uh, on these designated herd management areas, these are areas set aside specifically for the wild horses. We see the agency allocating up to eighty percent of the forage to cattle and sheep. So you know, uh, and 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 again, this is one of the the really infuriating parts of this of this whole situation is that the agency tells people there are too many wild horses and that they have to be you know removed uh, without saying that already uh the uh the 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 herd is outnumbered by as much as 30 to 1 by uh, by cattle and sheep um so i want i don't think i can uh, overstate the importance of the work that ashley has done and also the important work being done by wild horse photographers and artists and, and musicians. I, in many ways, just as disinformation is the BLM's most potent weapon, I feel like creative work around wild horses like this, like this film Um, Are probably the horse's most potent weapon that is this is how we get the truth out there. I, I posted a picture of a stunning Palomino wild stallion in Wyoming, and he's just massive huge muscles big crested neck I mean he's just absolutely stunning. Um, and it's funny because all of the comments are like, "Well, he doesn't look like he's starving to me," and mm-hmm. "Well, looky there, another fat, healthy horse on public lands." And so I think, you know, especially among among advocates, you know, we we are definitely into this, you know, offsetting this narrative. But that's why we need projects like like Wild Beauty. We need to show the American people the truth. And it's it's probably not going to be most effectively conveyed in press releases or op eds, although those things are important. But in these creative works that actually show, um, you know, what the conditions are out there and that grow the public's appreciation for the wild horses, as well as the outrage at the way they're being mismanaged by the federal government.
0: All right. Thank you, Scott. Ashley. let's go back. Go back to you on that. two questions. One is generally what were your observations along those lines when you saw these horses? Did you see privation, uh, malnourishment, et cetera? And second, uh, and maybe even more interesting to me, because I think Scott just made a good case that these are not animals in dire straits, is your use of the word family to describe the environment in which these horses live. What did you observe about these animals from a social perspective?
2: From a social perspective, it was one of the most beautiful things of being out on the range. And that's why I say at a lot of our film festival screenings to people who see the movie, if you get the opportunity, go out into the wild, go out and see this. We have it right in our backyard. Go out with your family and see wild horses, see wild lands, see wild species. Getting to even a few hours among them, if you prop up a lawn chair and you just watch, it's beyond clear that they've had these extraordinarily close family relationships. and you see the stallions, they do something called snaking where they put their head down very near the ground. and it's so beautiful to see and they, they move their family around. And whether it's encouraging them to go to water or often the lead mare brings them to water. Um, but just watching these powerful stallions, you know, you you see them fight with other stallions over over their families or to, to get a new mare and then you see them in their in their very quiet moments which were my favorite moments to observe where you see these these fierce stallions standing like the most gentle giants over their newborn foal and standing right next to their mares and just being so 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 peaceful and so so gentle in those moments with their families it's just it's really miraculous to see nature is miraculous and then some of the ob- observations that we had as we continued down the path over the years, was that certainly as Scott as Scott's discussed and and the scariest thing is that repetitive narrative where the BLM is saying you know they're starving they're overpopulated it's drought and hearing that you know I I work with actors for a living so I <laughs> I'm used to hearing repetitive phrases and it's really disturbing when those repetitive phrases are used like a movie script by the publicist for. The Bureau of Land Management in different states, where they're they're parroting the same script or a very similar script, um, and they often do that. We observed with if there's ever any media that attend the roundups, which are which it's harder to get a new station to cover a roundup because often they're in very remote areas. So, so you so it's 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 when when they do have media there, you watch the same thing happen where the pub, the, the Bureau of Land Management publicist will go and they will part out that journalist, they'll take them away from the crowd, away from us, away from our, you know, our audio equipment, and they'll, and they'll uh, speak to them at a distance, and you know what they're saying, because they try to convince it, convince us of their, of their narrative when we first began this project. They, of course, tried to see if they could steer us in the opposite direction of the one that we ended up taking but when it came to the horses' body condition i mean we we were across over 20,000 miles it might have been i mean that was just when we were counting the odometer so i'm sure it was it was more than that but we were everywhere from california nevada uh, north dakota south dakota idaho oregon new mexico colorado we were we were everywhere and when we did witness these roundups the horses are fat and healthy and and when you, for, just by way of example with the Anarchy, if you would go and you would see the areas that the cattle had been released, yeah, some of those areas were Eric Mulvar from Western Watersheds, he described them really appropriately. He called them moonscapes, where you see just there's nothing left, but that's where the cattle were. And then you follow the horses and you go over the mountain and you go to places where the the cows don't go because it's too far away from the water source. And you see high grass, you're walking through high grass uh, over your knee. Sometimes it's just, and that's where the horses are grazing, and you see the very healthy rangelands. And so it's profoundly disturbing to me that the BLM is still getting away with saying wild horses are starving um, and overpopulated. And it's and it's even more disturbing when you really look at the patterns of what's going on. I mean, the summer roundup schedule just came out and they're targeting herds that we feature in the film that were just rounded up. I mean, the Sandwash Basin horses, they're taking more out of Sandwash Basin. And and Scott, you might have the exact numbers, but isn't Sandwash Basin over something like 800,000 acres? I mean, it's really hard to find those horses just when when they were at their previous numbers of about 400 or, or no, there were more. They were close to 700, I think, in 2021 before that devastating roundup. But I mean... That amount of land is, you know, to the naked eye, it's almost inconceivable how much land there is. And the fact that they're saying these horses are overpopulating, it's just, it's a lie. It's a, it's a, it's a lie that's been perpetuated and nobody's even getting a slap on the wrist for it, which is insane to me.
0: I, I hope your film has the same effect for wild horses that Blackfish did for captive orca and, and sea animals like that. I, I really do. It sounds to me very similar. Uh, in its potential, uh, Scott, what happens to these wild horses after they are rounded up? Where do they go?
1: Well, it's uh, it, it's obviously it's it's a very traumatic process, and this is one of the things that makes these operations so fundamentally and unacceptably inhumane. Is that you know um, first and foremost these these wild families are separated. Uh, the stallions are separated from uh, from their bands um, and um, they're taken first to from after they are are chased into a trap they're loaded into trucks and they're taken to a temporary holding facility where they uh, you know they the, the BLM will euthanize by gunshot any horse that has what they call a pre-existing condition or injury which very often are injuries caused by the roundup itself. Um, but then they, so they separate these families, and then uh, from there they go to what are called short-term holding, which are just barren dirt corrals uh, maintained by the the BLM. Um, and it's there that uh, the horses are, uh, uh, you know, the, the stallions are castrated, um, the horses are given a freeze brand, they're, you know, a, a tag is tied around their neck with a number, and at that point they stop being a you know a wild free-roaming horse and burrow uh, and become basically uh, just a number in the system. Uh, the animals are put up for adoption through various uh, means. The, the BLM holds uh, public adoption uh, events where they take uh, these animals to you know fairgrounds uh, and facilities around the country to try and generate uh, adoptions. They also have an online adoption process uh, but then, you know, the the worst part uh, of the adoption process is what's called the adoption incentive program, where the BLM pays uh, adopters thousand dollars a head to adopt up to four animals per individual. Um, and what we're finding, and this was exposed by the New York Times in August of 2021, is that um, uh, these adopters are gaming the system. They get they 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 get thousand dollars per horse. Hold on to them for a year, never socializing them, never working with them to try and get them, you know, to be manageable. Um, and at the end of the year, when they get their certificate of ownership from the BLM, they take those animals directly to the auction, uh, where those animals are at grave risk of going to slaughter in Canada and Mexico. Now, um, horses that are uh, that are not uh, that are put up for adoption and not adopted. Uh, they may end up going to what are called long-term holding facilities, and those tend to be larger pastures uh, maintained um, throughout the United States, but especially in the Midwest. Um, and uh, and there they spend the rest of their lives basically being fed at taxpayer expense, when of course they should be on public lands, uh, living their lives where they don't cost the taxpayer uh, a dime. Uh, but that's you know that's the reality. And yes, a small. A small portion of the horses do end up getting adopted uh, into good, loving homes, but unfortunately, uh, far too many are landing in the slaughter pipeline. And this is something that Ashley's film explores. She actually goes into a uh, an auction where horses and burros are being bought and sold for slaughter, and, and in Mexico, um, and um, and it's it's uh, it's distressing to see, and it's distressing because the BLM, uh, you know. Says that it has a no-slaughter policy that it, you know, that it 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 uh, uh, specifically does not want these animals going uh, into the slaughter pipeline, and yet uh, it knows that that these horses are going into the slaughter pipeline and it's doing nothing to try and stop it.
0: Ashley, actually, actually, I'll go back to you in a moment, but while Scott's on this topic, relative to horse slaughter at least, say a few words, if you would, Scott, to let our listeners know what animal wellness action, with you leading the effort, are doing to combat the horse slaughter pipeline, and tie into that too, if you would, please, what we are doing as an organization for wild horses overall.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, that, that that's probably a question for an entirely different podcast, because it's a big a big topic. But I will say that, uh, you know, one of the most important things that um, that uh, the Center for a Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action have done is partner with Animals Angels, which is an organization that is viewed um, as the leader in exposing the conditions for horses that are going to slaughter from the United States. And we partnered with Animals Angels in a new investigation that just came out. Uh, a couple months ago, and it um, it uh, exposes, you know, the terrible mistreatment of these animals, both at the auction yards and the kill pens, as well as on the trailers. And then it documents the absolutely horrific conditions that these horses have to endure as they are waiting at the meat plants for their turn to be slaughtered. Um, this investigation really exposes the need, as does Ashley's film, for a national solution. We do not raise horses in this country to be food. It is a cultural taboo uh, to eat horses, just as it is a cultural taboo to eat dogs and cats. In two thousand and eighteen, we passed Congress passed and and it was eventually signed into law by President Trump, the Dog and Cat Meat Pro Trade Prohibition Act that banned the slaughter of dogs and cats uh, for human consumption. And our strategy for ending horse slaughter in this Congress is to introduce a bill, uh, and we've already got bipartisan sponsors lined up, that would simply add equines, which are members of the horse family, to that dog and cat meat trade prohibition act, uh, and and then require the USDA to establish a meaningful and stringent a, a regulatory enforcement uh, program to make sure that horses aren't being uh, exported for slaughter, uh, but it's a top priority for this organization ending the slaughter of of horses. And I think you know that the issue of wild horses and horse slaughter are inextricably intertwined because, as as we've said, um, you know the BLM is allowing unprecedented numbers of formerly wild horses and burrows to go into the slaughter pipeline. And you know the advocates and the rescues and the sanctuaries are just scrambling all day every day to try and save as many of those animals as, as they can and get them to responsible homes.
0: I'll include in the show notes, links to pages on our website that talk about horse slaughter the uh, rules that you're describing, Scott, so that they can take action uh, as well from our website, you know, sign the letters to go to legislators, etc. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, actually, and of course, the Kentucky Derby occurs this coming Saturday. Uh, I wrote an op-ed for the Courier uh, Journal or Daily. It was published yesterday about The breakdowns of horses on tracks, right? Well, a number of racehorses are are sent to slaughter as well. You know, it's it's the dirty little secret of the horse racing industry that some of these thoroughbreds that just don't cut it uh, end up on a truck to Canada or Mexico and then turned into pet food. In fact, that happened to one of the Derby winners back in 1986, a horse by the name of Ferdinand. So it's it's certainly a brutal issue. So thank you, Scott, for, for illuminating that for us. Ashley, how has this film changed you personally? What are you going to take away from all your work on this great documentary?
2: Thank you. <clears throat> you know, I, I grew up with horses in, in my youth, in my childhood, in my teenage years, and, and being brought back to the world of horses through Black Beauty, which through understanding why Anna Will wrote that novel, and I say this in the film, but A few people know that Anna will wrote Black Beauty as an animal welfare plea for the horses of her time, the cab horses, the carriage horses. And she took a really bold risk in her storytelling in in having her main character take on this first person perspective of of itself. Obviously, Black Beauty speaks, it's from the horse's perspective. And so in, in researching that and coming to understand that back in 2017, as I was writing Black Beauty for audiences of today, I really wanted to honor Anna Sewell's messages, and that's when I started researching modern day issues that horses were facing in our country. And I've used this phrase before, but I felt such a profound sense of guilt that as a horse person in my youth, I didn't know that this was going on with wild horses. And so what we ended up doing was prior to Black Beauty's production my husband and producing partner Ed Winters and I we raised the first little bit of financing to go out to Wyoming, Utah, Nevada to film real wild horses for Black Beauty to show the authenticity of real wild horses who obviously look a little different they interact a little bit different or quite a bit different in in many respects and so some of that footage is what children around the world have fallen in love with when they've gotten to know wild horses through our narrative Black Beauty But it was after seeing the first roundup that that personal change occurred, seeing the cruelty, seeing two choppers chase wild horses. And then there was one particular little foal who was maybe a month old and he was driven all by himself. The chopper parted him away from his family and he was driven into the trap site and this little pinto colt. And I turned to my husband and my heart broke in a way that I've never experienced before it was almost like finding a new crack in your in your heart you didn't know was there and it exploded in that moment because it was so unfair and you couldn't hear him but you could see him through our lens throwing up his head and just as scott said how, this the, the level of inhumanity is just is just insane but um we ended up adopting him and he was reunited with his mayor and holding thankfully at palomino valley holding facility And, um, and that, that really started the personal change in, in realizing this level of cruelty was happening in, in our country. I mean, we live in the United States. I love our country. And I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed to think that we're doing this. And so that, that really started leading. And I think a lot of things are guided. I definitely think we were, we were called to this in, in, in some way. I don't know how the universe works, but the, the level of serendipity that needed to happen for this documentary to even be completed was was pretty profound. And so it was really a it was really a, a build into that personal change of, like I said earlier, getting bolder, and I have a background in journalism. And I just it it went from more of a, like I said, like an indie planet earth conception into this needs to get grittier. We need to go, we need to ask these questions in person. We need to be bold enough. To stand before those BLM representatives and ask these questions on behalf of the horses. So it definitely, and then we started our own small nonprofit mostly to reach children because I love working with kids through through my real work and through our nonprofit work, but um, it definitely it definitely, as you said earlier, I liked that it was the fr- the fragility that. What did you say? The fragility. Fragility
0: under fire. Mm-hmm. Fragility
2: under fire. I love that. I think that's the perfect encapsulation of the conversation with Gus War <laughs> that you'll see in the film. And, um, yeah, so I think I think those changes were were good ones, um, and it, of course, at times it was really distressing particularly editing the movie, because when you edit a film, you're in a room for months on end, going through the same footage over and over and over. And as a empathetic person that loves animals, that was really hard. It was really hard to edit the film. I mean, it was a joke with my husband, but at certain points, I, I remember saying, I think this is going to kill me. I can't watch, I can't keep watching it. Mm-hmm. But, but you have to do your, what we kept coming back to was we have to do our jobs as filmmakers, as journalists, as people who care about this issue and care about the horses. We have to keep going. And so I'm I'm beyond thrilled and very, very honored that we were able to complete this in the way that we did with a with team that was so Scott and Marty and Yvette Running Horse Colin and Eric Mulvar and Kimberly Curl, all of these amazing people that really care about the horses. And it was very special and very guided, I think, to find to find you guys, to find you, Scott.
0: Well, thank you, Ashley. I, I appreciate all of that very much. Thank you for staring at that which most of us can barely even glance at. So thank you for for doing that and for translating it visually in a way that tells a story powerfully, succinctly, digestibly for for the for the masses and I hope the masses watch this film and I certainly encourage all of our followers to watch it I'll have the link to the pre-order in the show notes as well so again our guest has been Ashley Avis along with Scott Beckstead uh Ashley uh, just um uh, is having out now it's available as I mentioned Wild Beauty Mustang Spirit of the West you can watch it, Scott and Ashley. You'll be in Seattle uh, later this month or next month for a screening, I believe. I'll put the date for that. So if you live in the Seattle area, you can meet these individuals in person. And if you can do that, that that would be great. And Scott, thank you for volunteering to fly me out there. I appreciate that. I'll let you know what my airport is and you can and you can bring me out. Uh, I assume so. you're going to want to fly first
1: class, right? No, no, no expenses spared.
0: <laughs> uh, I'll do I'll do coach as long as you put me at least in uh you know a nice Marriott when I'm out there Okay. No more Motel 6s. Thank you, Scott, for that. I appreciate it. And thank you to all of our listeners uh, for the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Giroud, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness
1: Podcast.